Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. tuning in to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. I'm Melanie Cogdill, Managing Editor of the Christian Research Journal. It's November 2020, and you're listening to episode 208, which is a conversation about medieval Christians and evangelism. On this episode, I'm joined by Nicole Howe, who has a master's degree in cultural apologetics from Houston Baptist University. She's an editor of and regular contributor to the quarterly apologetics publication, An Unexpected Journal. She is also co-editor and regular contributor to Cultivating Magazine. Nicole is currently working with a Bible project to develop a children's Bible curriculum for homeschooling families. Nicole has written a feature article for our Volume 43, Number 2 print issue for the Christian Research Journal, and her article is called Medieval Christians and Evangelism. You can read her article when you subscribe to the Christian Research Journal at Equip.org. Nicole, it's good to have you on. Thanks. It's fun to talk to you again. Thanks for having me. Well, as I mentioned, Nicole has this feature article in the current print issue of the Christian Research Journal, and it's a very fascinating topic because we're talking about church history as well as evangelism, and I think a lot of Christians don't really think about this particular time in church history. It's considered like popularly, or maybe it has a bad rap because (laughs) people say that's, you know, a really bad time in the church. It was people were not, you know, really enlightened. And it was, that's why it has the nickname of the dark ages. But before we get to that, I just want to, let's just set some ground rules as we talk about this issue when we're talking about the medieval church and evangelism. So What exactly do you mean by the word evangelism, and why is it important that you think that all Christians be involved in evangelism, sharing the good news of the gospel? Yeah, always good to define our terms. I think evangelism is such a word that we're so familiar with that we can almost forget what it means sometimes, but I use the definition as just publicly declaring the gospel with the intent to make disciples of Jesus as Jesus commanded us to do. So it's not about coercing or forcing anyone to convert to Christianity, which is very important, but it's about being a witness to Christ in such a way that others see the truth, beauty, and goodness of the gospel and desire to follow Jesus. But I I think evangelism is one of those words that we think is just a spiritual gifting reserved for a select few. And I know there are definitely people who are called to embrace evangelism in their lives in more ways than the rest of us might be. But that doesn't mean that we're not all called to it to some extent. And I have been 
in a room with other Christians where they say things like, well, that's just not my gifting or, you know, good for you. But evangelism is just not my calling. And I've thought those things before because I think we often think of missionaries who travel to far off countries or I think sometimes of the bullhorn guy standing on the corner, you know, with big signs calling everyone to repent and pass out tracts and as long as we have that in our minds, I think we will distance ourselves from evangelism more than we should. And I mean, really, apologists in the field of apologetics consider apologetics to be pre-evangelism. We're just helping remove barriers to the gospel that might prevent someone from wanting to embrace Christianity. So evangelism can get a bad rap. We can misunderstand it. Some people think it's pushy. But it's not. It's those of us who've been transformed by the truth and goodness and beauty of the faith want desperately to see others experience the same. And we believe that's Jesus's heart, too, is to set the captives free. So the gospel is good news and we want the world to know about it. And I think just to clarify to our listeners that, of course, as we talk about this particular period in, you know, history and in church history, it can be, you know, maybe provocative because at that time the church was more connected to government. So people can think immediately, oh, when you're saying, you know, come to Christianity, you mean some political thing or we're going to change your society. But to just kind of, you know, just to make sure we have our definition straight, when we say the gospel, we're meaning that people who don't know God have been separated from God by their sin. And the only way to be reconciled is to recognize that Jesus is God. He died on the cross. He was resurrected and that we have to have faith in him in order to be able to have a reconciled relationship with God. So it's not that at that time they were calling people to a specific religion for political reasons or something like that. So when we talk about evangelism, we have to make those terms clear because I think even today in our culture, I think people are confused when they say certain terms out there like evangelicals that has the word about like evangelism, you know, saying something that about what we believe that suddenly it's, oh, that means you're a political person or you believe this particular on this topic, as opposed to we are about helping people who understand that we have a need for God and we've been separated from him because of sin. Yeah, and the more it gets tangled up with politics and power and empire and government, the more lost that that gets. And so I do, I think, especially in the medieval era, we just have these caricatures of what we think that period was and what it meant and what the gospel was. And going back to that, it's been so enlightening for me to go and really study that time period and realize how much I've absorbed that I never questioned, that I just assumed was true. And I had all of my assumptions challenged when I really dug into that period and read about it for myself. It's fascinating. And we don't fully understand it. There's so much that we can learn from medieval Christians. And I think we're impoverished when we don't take the time to dig into that history. I think it's very true. So to get specifically to the history that you talk about in your article, Who were the Anglo-Saxons? And those are people that were in Britain, that area, and the UK today. And why are they a good model for Christians today in the 21st century to follow when it comes to the issue of evangelism? Yeah, 
Yeah, I was so fascinated by the accounts of Anglo-Saxon life. Again, didn't really know much about it until I went back to school for my master's in apologetics. And much of what we find about them can be found in St. Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People, which is a big book. But I mean, this is going back all the way to the Germanic tribes of the fifth century. So the fact that we even have some of these historical accounts of life back then, like what a gift that is. And so this was the time period where St. Augustine had a, well, forgive my pronunciation, I think it's actually Augustine, but I can't bring myself to pronounce it that way. But he had a huge influence in spreading Christianity to that area. And so it's all overlapping with him, with, you know, father of the church. And as Christianity was spreading, these medieval Christians were so adept at sharing their faith with the surrounding pagan cultures. They were experiencing, believe it or not, very similar dynamics to what we are experiencing in our pluralistic culture. There were all these different religious beliefs swirling in overlapping cultures, and they had to deal with that. And even though the medieval period gets such a bad rap for being the Dark Ages, which is kind of a misnomer, I remember reading somewhere, and I can't remember now, that that, that Dark Ages was had more to do with the fact that people could not read books for themselves. It had nothing to do with them being steeped in dark superstition or anything like that. So even that phrase is misunderstood a lot of the times. But that's a misunderstanding that they were just completely ruled by religious superstition and backwards and unintellectual. David Lindbergh says in his book, a really great book, The Beginnings of Western Science, that people just assumed that Christian leaders just preferred faith over reason and ignorance to education. But it is such a misunderstanding of this culture. They were brilliant. They had a vibrant intellectual faith. And more than anything, I think what we can learn from them is the way that they approach their faith holistically. We are so split because of the Enlightenment, where facts are on one side and emotions are on the other side, reason is on one side, imagination is on the other side. Lewis talks about this a lot. But medieval culture did not know how to divide those things the way we do today. So their evangelism was steeped in imagination and reason, natural and supernatural. It all comes together really beautiful in the way that they approach the gospel. And I think we can learn a lot from that today. I think we also take for granted in terms of talking about the West and, you know, Western cultures that they were always Christian. Mm -hmm. And at the time of the Middle Ages, you just mentioned paganism. And just, you know, like, let's define what that is, you know, that would be other different religious practices, maybe that involved polytheism or, you know, the worship of many gods like they had in the time of the early church, where it seems like we assume, oh, all these people were the way that we see things now when we talk about the West and Christianity and its influence. And it wasn't like that. It wasn't the majority religion at the time. And we just assume that it was. So I just want to mention that too. When we say paganism, we just really mean non-monotheistic religions. And so Christianity was very different in contrast to the norm Mm -hmm. of that time. Yes. Exactly. So they were, yeah, I think in our culture, we just assume Christianity as being, you know, the majority. And if you look back through church history, most of the time, that's not the case. 
And so getting back to this period where they weren't is really helpful for us as we're starting to feel more and more marginalized in our own culture. So you mentioned a conversion story of King Edwin and about, you know, how that's a good example of how medieval Christians approached evangelism. So first of all, who was King Edwin? What is his conversion account and what can Christians learn from it? Yeah. So this also shows up in St. Bede and it was the first time I'd ever read about it or learned about it and was just fascinated by it. King Edwin was just a very, very influential king. He had a lot of territories under his rule. So again, in the time where religion and government was more intermingled, that mattered. And I believe he was in the seventh century and was credited for being the first Christian king of Northumbria, which was a kingdom in Anglo-Saxon England. But he was not always a Christian. And his conversion story, as Bede tells it, gives us a lot of insight in how the medieval Christians approached evangelism. And we read in St. Bede that Edwin was initially very hesitant to come to the Christian faith. And he said he would be only willing to convert if his advisors determined that Christianity was holier and more defensible to God than his previously held religious beliefs. So he wasn't going to just jump into this. Um, he wasn't, he was really thinking about what was the proper religion and what was true and what was acceptable to God. And I just found that fascinating because I, I don't know that those are always our reasons today. A lot of times we seek comfort or pleasure, but he seemed to take this seriously. And B tells us, a quote from his book says that Edwin was a wise and prudent man who made a habit of sitting alone in a quiet room, conversing with himself for long periods, turning over in his inmost heart what he should do and which religion he should follow. I think many of us would be thrilled to have people that we can talk to that are that thoughtful about this and give that much time to something like this. So we read that a, a bishop named Paulinus, along with Pope Boniface, just mustered up all that they could to engage King Edwin on these intellectual grounds. We're told that they reasoned with him on why he should convert to Christianity. And B tells us that they presented really strong cases for Edwin to renounce his idols, you know, pagan idols, and make a change. And we're also told that Boniface instructed Edwin with a letter. He crafted an apologetic for Christian truth, such as the Trinity, the good news of the redemption, the reality of God, and then went on to reason with Edwin regarding the absurdity of worshiping powerless idols. He really just tried to expose, you know, the futility of worshiping, you know, wood and stone and, and powerless idols and gods, and that's directly from scripture. They're just objects made by men. And so we see him Boniface and Paulinus reasoning with him way back in the medieval period, producing a robust intellectual argument for him to convert to Christianity. You're listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest is Nicole Howe, who has written a feature article in our print edition, volume 43, number two, which is available now. And her article is called Medieval Christians and Evangelism. You can read her article when you subscribe to the Christian Research Journal for 3350 at equip.org. 
Once again, I would like to thank everyone for partnering with this podcast and helping us get the word out about the content that we have on it. And the best way that you can do that is to simply tell a friend or maybe share this episode or one of your favorites on your social media accounts. The other best way that I mention to you every episode is please do give us a review. The best place to do that is at Apple Podcasts. You can search for Postmodern Realities Podcast, and then you can give us a starred review, which is just a quick moment to select the stars. Or if you have a minute, please think of one or two sentences about what you enjoy about this podcast most. And when people read those, it helps them decide if they want to join us and listen to the content every week. The other way that you can help us, if a subscription for 3350 is not in your budget right now, please think of giving us a tip. You can do that at our website, equip.org. A tip would be something like $3 or $5 or $10. And you can find the link to tip us when you go to equip.org, go to magazine at the drop-down menu, select that middle selection, which is Postmodern Realities Podcast, hit the landing page at any episode, and you will find the link for tips. And thank you for all the ways in which you help us get the word out about the Postmodern Realities Podcast and are part of the Christian Research Journal team. We were just talking about King Edwin's conversion and, you know, you were explaining that I think a lot of us think of that time in the church as you know, the dark ages, people were superstitious. They Mm -hmm. didn't, there was no science. They were anti-intellectual. So do you think their reasoning, was that what ultimately converted him to Christianity? Yeah. And this is what I, going back to the idea of a holistic approach, because first you see that they did have a robust intellectual faith. They were not anti-intellectual. You see from King Edwin in the way that he approached thinking about Christianity to Paulinus in the way that he approached talking to King Edwin about Christianity, they put a high value on the intellect. And yet, unlike our post-enlightenment culture, that is not the only way that medieval Christians sought after truth. And that's what I think is so fascinating about these accounts is because Bede tells us that eventually, you know, after all of this, they exerted themselves as much as they could at the point of reason. But King Edwin's proud mind could not accept the humility of the way of salvation or the mystery of the life-giving cross. And these are some of the very same things that can trip people up today. I love how Bishop Robert Barron says that Christianity is not unreasonable, but it is supra-rational. Reason can't get you all the way there. And there's just no other religion on the planet that makes so many counterintuitive claims like our neediness before God or the fact that the God of the universe would give his life for ours. No matter how airtight of a logical argument we make, There are claims in Christianity that can create barriers on the emotional level. And so we see that Paulinus ultimately couldn't rely on reason alone. And Bede tells us that Paulinus approached his evangelism with, quote, words of exhortation addressed to men, but also with prayers of supplication addressed to the divine compassion. And I think that is so beautiful 
because Paulinus eventually realized he needed to pray for other ways to reach King Edwin. It could not just be through his intellect. And then we see that that prayer was answered because ultimately what brought King Edwin to finally renounce his idols was a heavenly vision that he'd received years prior while the king was still in exile. So at the end of that vision, Edwin was instructed to remember a specific sign in which a man would place his right hand on Edwin's head. And when Edwin was still struggling to fully embrace Christianity, Paulinus, who was also aware of this vision through his own prayers, placed his right hand on Edwin's head and asked him if he remembered the sign. I mean, can you imagine (laughs) that experience? That's powerful. So when he did that, Paulinus was able to supernaturally affirm the vision that Edwin had received. And it was then we're told that the king began to take the Christian faith much more seriously. And that's important. He didn't convert right there on the spot, but that removed a barrier for him that allowed him to continue pursuing the faith intellectually. So in Paulinus's approach, we see this beautiful integration of reason and imagination, the mind and the emotions, and the natural and the supernatural. And again, I just think in all of our quest to make Christianity reasonable, which is good, we sometimes forget that part about just the supernatural hand of God being involved in these conversions. Now, you're talking about reason and imagination and how they work together to play a part in King Edwin's conversion. And in your article, you also introduce us to a poet named Cadman. Who was he and why is it noteworthy about Cadman's approach to evangelism? Like what set it apart? Yeah, I'd never heard of Cadman before reading St. Bede. I don't know. Some people have probably heard of the Christian band called Cadman's Call which I actually think, sadly, I think he was another Christian leader that renounced his faith recently, which is so sad for a band named after Cademan. But I never even realized that that band was named after this medieval poet. So discovering him in the pages of Bede was really cool. But he was the first known poet in England. And Bede tells us that he was gifted by God with an incredible ability that if scripture was explained to him by interpreters, he would then turn it into these delightful and moving poems of his own. So Cademan was an artist through and through, and he gives us a remarkable example of how reason and imagination can come together to make evangelism more effective from an artistic approach. And basically how the story goes is we're told that he had a dream in which he was left with an ability to sing beautiful verses he had never heard before. So the key to his approach in evangelism is found in Bede's words when he says that Cademan's verses, quote, have stirred the hearts of many folk to despise the world and aspire to heavenly things. I think that's such beautiful language to describe the power of art when it comes to evangelism, to aspire people to heavenly things. I mean, That's just such a beautiful phrase to me. So what that does is it invites people to shift their gaze upward because Cademan spoke the language of the imagination in a way that got people's attention, a different doorway, let's say, than beginning with the intellect. 
Nicole just mentioned a former band member of that group, Cayman's Call, and she was talking about Derek Webb. That's who she was referring to. And I just wanted to let our listeners know, especially if you're a newer listener to this podcast, that back on episode 133, we had a in-depth discussion about deconversion. And that episode's called The Disorientation of Deconversion. And we specifically mentioned Derek Webb. So if you're interested a little bit more in unpacking that, which is kind of a side note, mm-hmm. since you mentioned it, I thought I would let you guys know that it's available and you can go back and look for episode 133. But I want to unpack a little bit more about Cademan's approach and his imaginative approach to evangelism using his poetry that you're mentioning. Do you think that his approach through the arts, through poetry, was less intellectual or maybe anti-intellectual compared to using reason, you know, that Paulinus did. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very different when you're using imagination or in our time, like film or other, you know, artistic forms to talk about issues that would lead somebody to consider questions that we ask in evangelism. Right. Yeah, I think that continues to be in our post-enlightenment culture presented to us so much as an either or. And I think the nuance that we have to grab a hold of is that even if you emphasize one or the other, we certainly see art emphasized more with cavemen. We see intellect emphasized more with Paulinus's approach. But in both of them, we see that actually underneath there is a holistic approach going on. And the same is true with Cademan. Um, I love Dr. Ward says that the imagination without reason is simply imaginary. Imagination with reason is imaginative. So there's a big difference between imaginative and imaginary. And what continues to fascinate me when I study medieval culture is how robust their faith was intellectually and how undergirded by truth and reason it was, even in their artistic embrace of supernatural visions and music. So even in a poet like Cademan, we see a strong commitment to study and clear thinking. He didn't write verses that were merely beautiful or sentimental or say, imaginary. He didn't write things that people simply wanted to hear. He didn't just make something, you know, to whet people's appetites. His words were grounded in the truth of scripture. He'd ask people to explain the scriptures to him so he couldn't then transpose them into music in the language of his hearers. He was no dummy. So he was doing his homework. He was studying. He wanted to make sure that his music was grounded in truth. And Bede tells us that he stored up in his memory all that he had learned. And like one of the clean animals chewing the cud, he turned it into such melodious verse that his delightful renderings turned his instructors into auditors. I love that phrase. So people who would try to teach him the truth became listeners. And listening is a it would be remarkable if we could get more people to listen in our culture today. So he was quite an evangelist that he could have that effect on people. And even though he took an artistic approach, he studied, he memorized scripture, he was grounded in the truth. And again, I think we can learn a lot from that if we do want to approach evangelism artistically, like you mentioned with film, art, that's wonderful and our culture needs it. But we can take our cues from Cademan to make sure that it is always grounded in the truth of scripture. So obviously, from what you've 
mentioned to us already that Paulinus or Cademan, I mean, it's not just their own methods or their particular efforts. And you were saying earlier that King Edwin, you know, they gave him a lot of reasonable arguments, but he wasn't exactly converting quickly. So what do these two accounts teach Christians today about the importance of the spirit in evangelism? I mean, obviously the Holy Spirit is at work, but I think a lot of times, especially in our modern context, when we have a lot of programs that we want to, oh, if we have this program, then these many people can come to Christ or whatever. What do we have to be reminded about the work of the Holy Spirit in evangelism? Yes, this more than anything, when I dove into this era, this is probably what was most convicting for me. And sometimes we don't understand our own culture until we immerse ourselves in another one and we can see our culture through their eyes. And immersing myself in medieval culture, that was probably one of my biggest takeaways is how impoverished we are when it comes to our reliance on the Holy Spirit. I think it's a crisis in our church today. I might be overselling that, but I, it's just my personal conviction right now because their reliance and expectation on the movement of the spirit was so much more alive than ours is today. And maybe partly what gets them the bad rap of being superstitious. I think that's just a misunderstanding. I think they were uh, highly, highly dependent on the spirit and they were more comfortable existing in a world that they believed was teeming with the supernatural. We live in a highly materialistic world today. And our culture just as a whole, I think, has lost sight of the fact that the world is supernatural. So Paulinus's evangelism was powerful and effective because he partnered with the Holy Spirit in a way that King Edmund found difficult to deny. When somebody can affirm a vision like that, that's pretty convincing, even if emotionally you're still having a hard time getting there, but we don't see a lot of that today. And Cademan was known for being talented well beyond his abilities in ways that got people's attention. Yes, he was a good poet. Yes, he was a good musician, but his witness was made clear, not just by the words he wrote, but by the fact he could write them at all. Because Bede tells us, after hearing an account of Cademan's story, even educated people agreed that his gift was from God. So this was not just a good poet. It was almost miraculous in what he was able to do. So again, the Holy Spirit empowered him far beyond his natural abilities. So yes, these men were good stewards of the abilities God had given them, but they partnered with the Holy Spirit in ways that gave them far more power and far more success than, as you mentioned, any program or formula would ever get them. I think we rely too much on programs and formulas sometimes. And we forget this part of evangelism. We get caught up thinking it's all up to us to change minds and hearts, or we get duped into thinking we can actually do that, or we forget that the Holy Spirit can empower us far beyond our natural limitations. We can do more than we ask or imagine when we allow him to work through us. And in a materialistic, anti-supernatural culture, it's easy for Christians to get lulled into the belief that it's all up to us. Well, one thing's evident to me from our conversation is that these particular evangelists really understood their culture, and they understood how to contextualize the message of the gospel without changing the message. So why is that important for us today? Why is it not like, oh, a one-size-fits-all type of thing? We are not going to change the message of the gospel, but why is contextualization so important? 
Yeah. Yeah, we see that so clearly in their two different approaches. You know, they had different contexts, different people that they were ministering to, and so they approached it differently. And there are so many reasons why people experience barriers to the Christian faith. You know, for some people today, they were raised in a home that claimed to be Christian, yet poorly demonstrated the truths of Christian belief. Uh, a lot of these people think they understand the faith, but they've actually never really been introduced to it properly. I think that's a unique problem in our culture today is there are very few people, at least here in America, who've never heard the name of Jesus. The problem isn't that they don't know. The problem is they think they know. Others have been wounded by people bearing the name of Jesus. Others have intellectual objections. I have friends who say, I'm just too smart for Christianity or I know too much. But it's their materialistic worldview that prompts them to assume the supernatural claims of Christianity are just anti-intellectual or ignorant. But then there are others who have emotional barriers to the faith. They've experienced deep pain or suffering, or they can't get their heads around the mystery of the cross, much like Lewis struggled. So it's so important to understand who we are speaking to and what their barriers are, because whether they are intellectual, emotional, or cultural, we can't provide an evangelistic approach that's helpful if we don't understand the people we're speaking with. And I think, to go back to your point about programming, that's where we can get into trouble with that because it's so depersonalized. And we move people through systems and programs like cattle with one approach that is not going to work for you know, maybe half the room. And so I think getting back to relationship, we see that in these accounts. They knew who they were speaking to. Paulinus and Boniface understood that King Edwin needed heavy doses of reason to satisfy his intellectual thirst. And they were skilled in the doctrines of the faith. And they were ready to answer his intellectual questions. And then Cademan was able to take those same truths and incarnate them into a music that helped people experience the beauty and the mystery of them, satisfying their need for an emotional engagement with the faith. So absolutely knowing your audience is key to knowing what approach to take and to being effective. I think most Christians or many Christians would probably define apologetics as, you know, it's giving reasonable arguments, a reasonable defense of the Christian faith. And but what you're talking about, particularly in the medieval Christians, is that they're using both reason and imagination when you consider Cademan. But I want to also tell our listeners, that's why we cover cultural apologetics on the Postmodern Realities podcast, is a lot of people would say, well, why would you even talk about this film or this TV series or these works of literature? And it's because imagination is so important and it's helpful to think through especially some of these cultural touchstones that that's how people are seeing their worldview develop mm -hmm. a non-christian mm -hmm. worldview and that's kind of what they're holding to or that's the kind of the popular things that people are thinking about and when christians you know maybe a show or a tv series might not be appropriate to watch but for those who are equipped and can go through there you could know what the premises of those things are so that you can use it as a springboard to engage people in questions about you know the big questions why am i here why do i exist does god exist those kinds of things so why would you think that this holistic approach is very important especially like i said 
given our cultural context today, which is post-Christian. I mean, people don't talk about things through a Christian lens. They talk about things through watching their favorite show or, you know, oh, this is what I've learned in Breaking Bad or, you know, fill in the blank of anything. I mean, I know that show's over, but that's why we've covered things there before in, in some of these popular cultural types of literature and art, because frankly, that's kind of, um, we've said this before in the Christian Research Journal a long time ago, we, we published an article that today's literature is TV and movies, yeah. those mm-hmm. kinds of things. And so how can imagination and art help us think more deeply about spiritual things? Yeah. As you're talking, it made me think of a quote by St. Athanasius that I love, and I'm just going to paraphrase it, but he talks about how Christ came down our gaze had been so shifted downward that Christ had to come down and lock eyes with us there so that he could shift our gaze back up. And I think that's the beauty of the incarnation is that God came down and met us where we were and met our gaze when we were focused on created things instead of the creator and locked eyes with us there and then invited us back up to spiritual things. And so I think that is what you're doing and what art and film and in just cultural understanding can do is, is to lock eyes with people where their gaze is currently locked and, and then invite them to something more. Because I mean, at the end of the day, people are going to have a need for both. They're going to need an imaginative and intellectual approach to the faith. And if we don't give them an imaginative approach in truth, they'll seek it out elsewhere. I think, I think we can probably say we're seeing an uptick in you know, new age religions and people are craving the supernatural and doctrine alone or reason alone right now is just not enough because it doesn't do justice to our spiritual selves. And people are hungry for a touch in their spiritual life. And we have that in Christianity. And so a solely reasonable approach just doesn't do justice to the beauty and wonder and mystery that's alive in Christian belief. But without the intellect, you have nonsense. Unreasonable faith is not Christianity. And again, the imaginative just becomes imaginary. Even St. Augustine, who championed rightfully a proper focus on the celestial and eternal, also recognized that the temporal could serve the eternal by supplying knowledge about nature that would contribute to the proper interpretation of scripture and the development of Christian doctrine. So again, that's what we're talking about here, that yes, the spiritual and the eternal are important, but those incarnated temporal things can help us understand our world, our nature, ourselves, and contribute then to understanding those spiritual things. So I think I think modern Christians often have to combat the same myth that was charged to the medievals, which is that faith is born out of stupidity and ignorance. And we do have to fight against that misunderstanding and show that our faith is intelligent and coherent. And it does not mean that you have to check your intellect at the door. But at the same time, facts alone can be dry. Facts alone do not give meaning. And many people in our culture today just aren't that interested in hearing about the Christian faith. Like I said, they either think they know it or they just don't want to have anything to do with it. And so we have to captivate their imaginations and hearts first. Sneak past people's defenses or those watchful dragons, as Lewis would say, which, again, I think is so much of what you're saying that you do at CRJ. 
And so we can follow Cayman's lead. We can transpose Christian truth into a language that inspires people to higher things. We can use poetry and music and film and TV to translate the truth of scripture into something that could be the very first step in their journey to wanting to learn more. And after studying the medieval culture, I am convinced they were masters at this and they used all of the approaches. And more importantly, they relied on the Holy Spirit to empower them to do more than they could ever do on their own. So I just encourage everyone to dig in a little bit and take a look at this culture for yourself, because I think we need to hear from them today. Well, finally, I want to end with some fun rapid fire questions for Nicole. So Nicole, Starbucks pumpkin spice latte, yes or pass? <laughs> I'm one of those uh, high, high maintenance people. I get a soy hazelnut latte with half the pumps. That's my go-to. So a pass for the pumpkin. <laughs> so we've been talking about imagination and art. So books or movies? Oh, still books for me. Cups in your kitchen at cabinets, are they right side up or upside down? <laughs> uh, I dry them right side up, which is weird. And then I put them away right side or down. Yeah, I put them away upside down. Upside down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and are you a big decorator for, you know, seasons? So are you decorating your home for fall and the holidays? I wish. I have one, one pumpkin sitting on my foyer. Uh, table. That is it. I just, I'm one of those people. I'm just waiting for Christmas. I'll admit it. Well, thanks, Nicole, for being a guest on the Postmodern Realities Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to talk to you. You've been listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest has been Nicole Howe. She has written a feature article in our current print edition, volume 43, number two, which is available now when you subscribe to the Christian Research Journal at equip.org for $33.50. We'd like to hear from you, so connect with us on social media. Like the Bible Answer Man Facebook page and follow CRI, Christian Research Journal, Hank Hanegraaff, and the Bible Answer Man on Twitter. And please subscribe to the Bible Answer Man channel on YouTube. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the Postmodern Realities Podcast on iTunes, and please rate and review our podcast. When you rate and review our podcast, it helps others see our content. And please share this episode on your social media accounts. Be sure you tune in daily to the Bible Answer Man broadcast, hosted by CRI President Hank Hanegraaff, who answers your questions live on air. To ask Hank a question, call 888-ASK-HANK. Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. In addition, head to iTunes and subscribe to Hank Unplugged, Hank's audio podcast. Follow Hank off the grid where he has in-depth conversations with some of the brightest minds discussing topics you care about. So until our next Christian Research Journal author conversation, thanks for listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast. Mm -hmm.